Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, once again, as always, Rhea Wong. Today, we are talking with Jonah Halper, who is the president of Altruicity, which is a fundraising firm that helps folks systematize and raise more money. We'll talk more about that. He's also the author of a book called Date Your Donors, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Not literally, of course, because that's super creepy, but we're going to talk about dating your donors. So welcome, Jonah. Thanks for having me, Rhea. So tell us a little bit about yourself and about your company and specifically about this book that you wrote called Date Your Donors. Can you give us a shot of this book? Sure. So let's see about about myself and my company. It starts back in 2000 where I spent a year abroad in Israel and I was completely inspired and I came back saying, I want to help the Jewish people. I want to give back. I want to dedicate my career into that space. And I had no idea what that I just knew I came back and inspired and that was it. So I interned for a small Jewish community organization, the Jewish Federation in Rhode Island. And then I ended up going to a job fair for a Jewish Federation professional. So if you're not familiar with what a Jewish Federation is, it's like a united way, but for the Jewish community. So if you are a Jewish Federation in Boston, Massachusetts, then they are the federated organization raising money for all the different beneficiary agencies, whether you're a Jewish Family Services, a JCC, Jewish Addiction Services, Jewish Big Brother, Big Sister, all that is underneath the umbrella of a Jewish Federation. So I went to a job fair for the Federation because I got engaged back in 02. Maybe it was still a one. It might still been a one when I was engaged. And when I got engaged, I realized I had to put food on the table. So I went to this job fair for federations, and I was interviewing for a job called campaign associate. I had no idea what I was interviewing for. I thought it was political campaign. It was the only time I ever heard campaign used in a sentence before. And I found out during the interviews that I was having that I was actually interviewing for fundraising jobs because I didn't know fundraising. I was just thinking, okay, I'm going to work for the Jewish people. So I interviewed with about a half a dozen Jewish federations from all over the United States that had come into New York where I was doing this job fair. And they were grilling me. What would you do in a situation with somebody who comes to an event and you see them off to the side? And all these different scenarios that I just had no idea what to do, what to say. I tried to fake it the best I could. And there was one guy from the Jewish Federation of Baltimore, Maryland. Guy, maybe five foot three, small, tiny guy, big personality. I go into the meeting with him and the entire time he is asking me about my hobbies, if I like WWF wrestling and you know what I read and the movies I like. We spoke like that for half an hour, never talked fundraising, never talked nonprofit, nothing. And I ended up getting a call back to that federation one-on-one. I got hired by Baltimore. And when I was working for him after a little while, I got the guts to ask him, like, what that, was that all about? Everyone else was grilling me and you are asking me about who my favorite wrestler was. And he said to me, he said, Jonah, you have a nice smile. You carry a good conversation. The rest you're going to learn on the job. That's all that mattered. And it put me in a frame of mind from like the very beginning. And he was my first boss and he was my best boss. And he taught me that in the end of the day, you have to be likable. People have to want to be around you and you will be good at it. Everything else you do, learn on the job. It also taught me that you hire the person not to fill a position because I wasn't going to fill a position per se. I was super green and I was not going to be that person. But 
I got my start in federation there, did federation for about 10 years, Baltimore, Connecticut, New Jersey. In 2010, I started paying private school tuition for my kids. And I realized that this career as a nonprofit professional is not going to pay these tuition bills. So I realized that I had to go find a way to be entrepreneurial, stay in the same space because I love what I was doing, but yet not be a full-time development person. And I started a consulting firm in 2010. And over the years, I evolved into being really a fundraising strategy and project management firm with the emphasis on project management. Because when I started in 2010, I was 30 years old. Why hire a 30-year-old kid when you can go hire someone who's got 30 years of professional experience, a lot more gray hair and being a C-suite executive? So I had to separate myself out and we became known for being a project management firm. We were in the weeds. We broke everything down into project task deadline. That became the hallmark of our firm over the last 10 years. And in the last four years, I finished writing a book called Date Your Donors, hence the topic of discussion for today. And I've lectured all over the North America, predominantly North America, also the Middle East and Israel. I've spoken a lot, basically talking about relationship-driven fundraising, and that's where I am today. Awesome. So Jonah, when you and I first connected, I think we were on the same page about a lot of things, particularly because I think people have this idea in their mind that fundraising is so scary and so intimidating and da, 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 but it's really just people. People give to people. And I even hate using the term donors because it creates this sort of faceless monolith. It's individual people are your donors and you have to get to know them. So let's segue that into date your donors. I'm assuming you don't mean that literally. <laughs> Do I? Do I not? No, of course not. Well, I mean, that's a different kind of fundraising. (laughs) Not recommended. Not recommended. Yes. There are plenty of HR lectures about how that is not a good idea. Yeah. Don't do that, you guys. But what do you mean by date your donors? So I realized because I was using a lot of analogies from the dating experience in fundraising, I realized "Hmm, maybe this thing really does carry all the way through. And I decided to write a book on it because I wanted to make fundraising accessible to anybody. You don't have to have a master's degree in fundraising to be a great fundraiser. Some of the best fundraising people I know are volunteers or lay leaders that have never sat in a fundraising chorus, nonprofit management. They didn't come from that world, but they were remarkable fundraisers. So I basically followed the entire process through in courtship, you know, identifying who should be your soulmate. You don't want to just walk into a bar and with loud music and think you're going to meet the right person. The equivalent of going to a country club and like, oh, there are a bunch of rich people in a country club. I'm going to go find my donors there. You can get lucky, just can get lucky in the bar, but it doesn't mean you're going to come away with a sustainable, real long-term relationship. So I basically charted the entire process of identifying donors to connecting with them, being attractive. What does being attractive mean when you're presenting yourself on behalf of an organization? Through engaging them, asking them for money, retaining them, keeping the fire alive, the same way you you can't let your relationships be on autopilot, to troubleshooting when things go wrong or there's miscommunication and all that. So that was the basic premise for what I was doing. But when I started doing the public speaking, I realized that there was a fundamental thing that I think needed to be clear because I think you're describing of people thinking of fundraising as a dirty word or something that people are fearful of. They need to understand that you're not dialing for dollars. In other words, the example I give is usually when I public speak, I'll start off and say, my name is Jonah Halper. I'm a nice guy. I'm someone you can bring home to your mother. I make a good living. I'm other focused. I'm great with children. And then I'll find someone in the audience, man or woman, and say, will you marry me? 
And then, of course, they look at me like I'm an insane person and they say, no. I say, okay, let me sweeten the deal. Let me give you a list of professional references, character references, right? Data, statistics, all that show you that everything I just told you is actually true. You can go make those phone calls and they'll tell you that I'm all those things. Would you marry me? No. I'm like, no. Okay. And then what I'll do is I'll find one of the men in the audience who I see is wearing a wedding band and I'll say, what was it that you said to your soon-to-be fiance before you got married that got them to say, yes, I'll marry you? Like, what was it that you said to them? that Because it must have been amazing. They said yes. And they're looking me confused. Well, there was nothing that I said that got them to say it. it was over a lot of time. And that's exactly right. In other words, being able to ask someone to marry you, it's not going to happen just because you look good on a piece of paper. There needs to be a human connection and an emotional connection. And also, there is nothing that you can say to convince someone to marry you. You know, this is what I said. Oh, I sold them the Brooklyn Bridge. I can sell ice cubes to Eskimos. Will you marry me? It's not how it works. It's not like Hollywood where you are truly surprised that you're getting proposed. You know you're going to get married. You already talk about, do I want kids? Do I want to live in the city or suburbs? All these things. It's just a matter of how you're getting proposed to that might be the surprise. That is effectively what you're talking about. It's partnership. It's relationship. So if you are talking to someone and saying, this is the equivalent of our nonprofit's white picket fence with the tires swinging in the yard, that's effectively what you're selling them on. And there's nothing dirty about that because you're talking about something that is a shared partnered vision for the future and you're asking them to join you for it. So there's a lot there, but I was just thinking about pushing this analogy a little bit further, which is I see a lot of people treat fundraising like a one night stand. Mm. You hit it, you quit it, you never hear from them again until the next time that you come around for a gift. I'm like, well, doesn't work for one night stands, probably won't work for this. Yes, that's exactly right. The one night stand of fundraising is, first of all, if you're talking to somebody because you know, for the one reason is that you know that they have money not because they bring any value to the organization, who they are as a person, but because, oh, I open up Forbes magazine, I see Michael Bloomberg's name on there. Okay, let's go ask Michael Bloomberg for money. It's going to feel dirty because you're just making it about the looks. The same way, if I see someone who I think is a beautiful person, attractive, physically attractive, they're hot, it's superficial. There's no, no substance there. And that person you're talking to, that donor or that woman or man, is going to know that it's skin deep. And they're like, well, I value myself more than skin deep. So I would want the person who I'm talking to to value me for that. So if you're going to have those conversations, then yeah, if it's a conversation that is heading towards a one night stand, then what do you expect? If it's about, these are my interests, these are your interests, this is where I see my future, where you see your future, and they go, huh, we got a lot in common. There's some chemistry here. We have this shared vision for the future that we, things that we care about, we value. Let's keep exploring this thing. And that's where the magic happens. The money comes because of the relationship. 100%. And I think the thing that really gets me is that a lot of fundraisers and actually a lot of boards, in fact, are always just in this transactional mindset. I can't tell you the number of times I was sitting in a board meeting and it was like, hey, you know, fill in the rich person. Hey, Mark Zuckerberg slash Oprah slash Jeff Bezos slash Bloomberg has money. Why don't we go ask them? And it's like, okay, number one, do you know them? Because unless you actually know them like real life, they're on your speed dial. That's not helpful. I remember my first job in the Jewish Federation of Baltimore, I was at a development team meeting and one of the, maybe it might've been the director of development, my boss might've said, okay, there's this new guy. He just sold advertising.com to AOL for some ridiculous amount of money, $300 million or whatever it is. He is 27 years old 
and he lives in his mom's house. He still lives still his home. So they're having a discussion, who's the best person to talk to this person? And one person gets up, well, I'm the major gifts officer. Maybe I should be the person to talk to them. And then this other person's like, well, I run this division that is a professional's division and the business professionals. Maybe he should come in that way. I raise my hand. I'm like, I'm 23 years old. I play video games. I guarantee I'm the right person to talk to him. He's 27 years old. He lives in his mom's house. He probably plays video games. Isn't that the connection that we're really looking for? It's not about being navel gazing and looking at your internal affinity groups and how do we fit this guy in? Where is he at? Where is that person at? And, And that's what you have to be paying attention to. So let me ask you this, because we are talking about the courtship, the nurturing of a relationship. But the thing is, it takes a lot of time, especially major gift work. And so I guess I'm wondering a couple of things. Number one, how would you characterize the dance? How long do you feel it takes to sort of see the fruits of your labor? And secondly, how big a portfolio would you recommend that a major gift officer handle? Because, you know, you're talking about a lot of very intense and detailed work. Yeah. So there is a kind of a bifurcation in your head about as there's the, the kumbaya relationship side of things, but there also needs to be, this is my pipeline. These are the names I'm working on. What's the cultivation plan I have for each of these people? And what are the steps that are getting me there? So you have to kind of balance. There's a relationship, which is paramount, but you have to make sure you have the eye on the prize. So it just doesn't, you know, die in the vine and they, they end up getting sucked up by somebody else because you just never pulled the trigger. So I think that the way to do it, first of all, as far as like how you didn't put a ring on it? Is that what you're saying, Jody? You didn't put a ring on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, first of all, it has to be a digestible number. So I usually say anywhere between 75 to 100 prospects. However, you're then grading them A, B, and C as far as you know their capacity. Do they have money, obviously? P, is their passion? Are their interests aligned to what you are interested in? R is relationship. Is it opening up Forbes magazine and going Michael Bloomberg? Or is it, oh... I have a board member and he plays golf with this person on Saturday. Maybe I should get in touch with them. If it's closer, it's one degree separation, then are the relationship strong? So if they're strong in CPR, capacity, passion, relationship, then grade A. If a little bit weaker, grade B. A little bit weaker than that, then C. So at least you're now thinking in terms of, okay, who am I spending my time on? And I can always keep up pipeline moving along and funnel people in, whether they go from A and down or C and up, or you add new people in, you're constantly refreshing. But at least now we're talking about a digestible number that you can handle and focus on. As far as the the courtship process, I wish I could tell you, there's no manual. It's not like from page 86 to 105, this is how you move a relationship along. I can tell you that there's certain things that you do notice. I mean, the way people start talking about the challenges that you're having at the organization, there's always the pain point of what you're trying to accomplish as an organization. And the moment the donors start talking in terms of we or how do we and what can we do, then you know that they're starting to think they are part of the solution, that they're part of the experience. That's a big thing. So especially when you're talking about major gifts, people, you can't be talking in terms of just their dollars. It's what they bring to the table beyond their dollars so they can bring their time. So that when you're talking to them, they're like, this is where we are, this is where we need to be. So I'll give you an example. I had a major gift donor once that was in the kind of the cross-section between technology and finance. And when we had stuff that was going on in the organization that was right there, I was like, this is the person we need to bring in. Because, you know, and I went to their office. They worked at Morgan Stanley in Lower Manhattan. And I go in his office. He lit up when I started presenting the problem. He pulls down a giant blackboard in his executive office chalk. I didn't know they, they made these at all. I thought it was an old school thing. Pulls it down, starts doing all this stuff on the board, totally hooked. Three minutes in, became a major gift donor, $10,000 plus, 30 days later. So that played out that way. I think it's just a matter of understanding that there is no manual. 
understanding that you're in the business of people. Also understanding is that that donor pretty quickly needs to understand where you are and where you want to be. I said that white picket fence vision for the future. That needs to be, you don't want to bury the lead. This is what I'm looking to accomplish. We're here now. I need to get to there. I may not ask them for money right away, but they need to understand that that's where I'm headed. Because when they understand that, then they're going to not be surprised when I ask them to be part of that solution. And, and that solution is often involving money. I also talk about this as well. Danny Meyer is a famous restaurateur here in New York. And he always says, imagine everyone is walking around with an invisible sign on their neck saying, make me feel special. At the end of the day, we just want to feel special. We want to feel we have value. We want to feel we've added value. We want to be part of something greater than ourselves. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about the donor experience. What experience do you want them to have with your organization? Similar to dating. Exactly. You want to set a mood, you guys. I think that's true in anything. When you talk about, I remember like, how many times have you like, given a talk? And if you ask people to recall even a couple hours later what you talked about without looking at their notes, they'll be hard pressed, but they'll remember how you made them feel. They'll remember certain themes and the kind of lens you, you brought up, but they're not going to remember the details. And in the end of the day, if you're going to be talking to a donor, if that donor walks away and goes, wow, that Jonah Halper, he's a really nice guy, really great guy. And what he's doing is fantastic. Wow. That to me is a victory, especially early on. I mean, obviously I want them to become more informed and more educated about what we're working on. But if that's a takeaway, then the next time I see them, they'll be like, Jonah, great to see you. That kind of thing. And that's, that's totally. that fantastic. I say this all the time. When I was a young fundraiser and I didn't know anything, I, was, I knew two things. I knew I had a good idea and I knew that I had social skills and the rest I figured out. But to your point, people have to want to enjoy spending time with you. And the mistake I see a lot of people making in major gift asks is they talk too much. They talk too much and they talk about themselves, which is basically the equivalent of going on a date with someone and having them talk about themselves. Right. Right. Enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My favorite questions for donors is where do you give and why do you give there? Because it immediately puts them in a frame of mind of talking about their values. And it just now I can be on the listening side of things and say, if there's an opportunity for where we can connect, if I see that these are their priorities. Now, obviously, if they're interested in saving the whales and my charity has nothing to do with it, then maybe there's nothing that'll happen there. And you know what? Move along. Or maybe they'll be inspired and they'll save the whales and my thing. But that being able to ask them, and if they're a donor or if I'm a new at an organization, this is great for anyone who comes new into an organization. You get to be the kind of, I'll go on a tour to talk to the existing donors and ask them, why do you give to this organization? I just came. Why do you give? And it gives you an opportunity, A, to learn what makes that person tick and develop a connection there. And also, it positions you as now as an ambassador of that organization. Now, I am the person that is representing the thing that you care about, which you just told me about. So that's always a very helpful trick for someone who comes into a position. Call the existing donors and mm -hmm. ask them why they give, and then you'll be able to expand your reach beyond that. And I'm just going to push this analogy further. There's no bigger turnoff than desperation. So I have had people come to major gift asks and when there's clear, there's no alignment. Hey, listen, I'm really into saving the whales. You have to bless and release people. You cannot waste time on people for whom this is not going to be their thing. Don't waste their time. Don't waste your time. And hope is not a strategy. Move on. If you look at it from the dating analogy, if the person's across from you is going, I, 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 me, 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 if they're talking about themselves the entire time, that is the biggest wet towel to any date. Oh God, they talked about themselves the entire time. That's a disaster. And it's from the perspective of lack of confidence, lacking confidence and where it's sourced that, I mean, that could be something personal and something to discuss with a therapist, or it could just be, you don't necessarily 
feel confident in your mission and what you're doing or feel excited about it. And maybe the cause that you are representing isn't the fit for you. And that that's fine. I mean, I've been in situations where people come in to my organization or others and it just wasn't the right fit. And it wasn't that they were a bad professional. It means it was just, look, if it's about the values and getting donors excited, if, if this is not your jam, then move on. Just don't find something that is. All right. So I'm going to have a couple more questions and folks are blowing up. So we're going to get to those questions right. soon. So we're in the middle of the biggest wealth transfer that the world has ever seen right now. You know, the boomers are transferring their wealth to their children and the younger generation. What do you think that we all need to be aware of when it comes to younger, wealthy donors? Okay. There's a few things. First of all, one of the big things is expectations on accountability and transparency. Did our parents care about good governance? Of course they did. They care about their money being used well. It's not about a new generation cares more than their parents. It's that because we were raised with access to information, everything's transparent. Everything's right there. We just have that expectation. That's the, our new normal. I should be able to see everything and everything about how my money's making a difference and make it immersive. Make It, it could be 6,000 miles away, but you just saying it isn't enough. Show me geolocation. Show me the well that you drilled. Show me the children with the water coming down on top of them or all that. Whatever it is, you now have a higher responsibility to be make it more immersive and create a sense of accountability and transparency with impact. How my money's making a difference, all that kind of stuff. And I think that it's not because, like I said, we care more. It's because this is the generation we were raised and there's that higher expectation. The other thing I think is that's generational is our parents used to see the ads for, you know, for only 39 cents a day. And you'd see a child who was dirty, covered in flies with a bloated belly. It was awful. You'd see these terrible, terrible images. And people would be like, oh my God, this is terrible, awful. Let me write a check. That's how it was. I think generationally, we now want to celebrate or see this, the impact. Don't show me the child who's covered in dirt. Show me the child who's getting the clean water. And it tells me the story that the child got those things and that you're the cause of that. Celebrating what your organization is doing as opposed to focusing and guilting people through the very difficult imagery. I think that's another big thing that you'll see has shifted a lot is that, and it's not that we're not afraid of it. We see it. We, we know it exists. But if you want to make me feel like I should be part of your solution, then show me what that looks like. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, I want to be part of that. That's amazing. Look, they're doing that. That's something I can be part of. And that's really exciting. You know, whatever it's fixing craniofacial uh, abnormalities, whether it's giving shots for people to keep, stay away from, keep not get sick from malaria, whatever it is, if you show me the impact and you celebrate that, I think that's another major thing that is a generational thing and people need to kind of, you know, shift their thinking. Yeah, 100%. Guilt and shame are not great motivators. I mean, they may be in the short term, but not for the long term. Okay, last question before we get into the Q&A, because folks are blowing it up. How has COVID changed major gift fundraising? Because, you know, traditionally, a lot of the things that we may have used for either cultivation or stewardship, like the site visits, just aren't possible anymore. So I'm wondering if you could both speak about how you've seen changes and any interesting solutions that you've seen to address some of these challenges. Yeah, I don't think it would take a rocket scientist to recognize that the fact that we're not seeing people face-to-face -face anymore, that has impact on relationships. I can't go into someone's office. I can't meet them in their home. I can't 
host a charity event. I can't do a parlor meeting in someone's home for them and 15 of their friends. None of that is available to me now, not the physical stuff. And and that is a shame. That's something that is just the, the reality we're in now. And hopefully that won't be too much longer, but for the, at least for now, and if we're going to operate this, then we have to come up with solutions. And I think that the biggest challenges that it presents is, is obviously developing relationships with the individual. When you're not able to bring people together, then they're not rallying together. You're not creating a community. So when you go to a gala dinner or an event, everyone's there like, hey, we're all caring about the same thing. This is exciting. There's that thing, which you can't feel as well because you're not there in person with them. You're not celebrating leadership. When we honor leaders and we say, this is what leadership looks like in our organization, and we honor, we give them the plaque or whatever it is, that's also tough because you're not able to necessarily show in the same way what that looks like. So there's a whole variety of things that impact major gift fundraising because it's not just about the dollars raised, it's about that whole experience of telling the story. But again, of course, because we're at home, there are some silver linings that have presented themselves. I mean, the fact that we're on Zooms mean that people are way more accessible than they used to be, for better or for worse, which means that the idea of I won't be in my office, I can't meet with you, doesn't have the same power to it. So, But also the ability to share your mission, ability to share your screen and show stuff take someone on a virtual tour of your campus, being able to invite special guests, people who are impacted by your work. You may not have a luxury of bringing someone from one of the service recipients of your organization in a normal circumstance, but if I can get them on a Zoom call and bring them in front of this donor, that might be great. That might be a real opportunity. So there's definitely things that you could do. There's a lot more virtual event fundraising now happening. I think that organizations that have been kind of dipping their big toe into some of the crowdfunding peer stuff, obviously are kind of forced into it now because they don't really have an alternative. So they're doing virtual events, crowdfunding campaigns. So some of the legacy institutions have been around a long time. They're now in it. So that's exciting. I think that it creates those type of opportunities. But I think that the North Star still needs to be, is this enhancing the relationship? Am I doing a good job telling the story? And if you can do that with the tools that you have, then you'll be successful. If you feel like your computer is a partition between you and other people and that you like th- that's it, I can sit and do donor research, but I can't connect, you won't connect. That's just how it is. You have to make the overtures to make an emotional human connection with people. Yeah, such a good point. And in, in this world, technology, this is what it is. We're on yeah. Zoom, so you got to figure it out. I guess in uh, the analogy, we're in a long-distance relationship, but we can still be in a relationship. Yeah, it's, it's not easy, but you, know, you have to get creative. Uh, we'll keep it we'll keep it pg version <laughs> i was gonna say hmm. uh, so the question from angela is what if you initially have no chemistry with a donor prospect and how would you overcome that either in person or in a virtual environment so i mean with any emotional intelligence in any situation you're not always going to jive with the person you speak to or you may not think you're jiving i dealt with people who are extreme introverts i'm the opposite of the spectrum i'm the extreme extrovert And I'm somebody who is very excited about things that are not very sophisticated. I love hard rock music. I love motorcycles. I love cigars. The person I'm talking to might like classical music, seltzer, and whatever it is. So for me, my interests may not align with their interests. My personality may not align with their personality. But in the end of the day, if what my product is, my organization, if I'm putting what my mission and where I'm headed is, first and foremost, then that might be enough. You don't have to be their best friend. When we're talking about developing relationships, it's about relationships, about being a partner for the cause and what we're doing. I'm just that steward for that. And so there's plenty of, I would say, you know, if I have a prospect list of 75 or 100 people, 
I would say maybe 10 of them will be really connected to and feel I have a real chemistry with them. It's not most of them. And I never expect that of them. And I can tell pretty quickly where that relationship is going to be. If I feel like they want this to be a certain type of relationship, then great. That's what it's going to be. I've gotten the most expensive baby onesies when my kids were born. I've gotten like invited to backyard lobster bakes and things like that. Right? I couldn't participate in it because I keep kosher. But you get invited to stuff or you're invited to birthdays or you have to go to funerals at times. You make the connections where you make the connections. You know, you just have to pay attention to what they're comfortable with, what they're not comfortable with, and you fill it out. And often they'll initiate. If they want a stronger connection, they want to hang out or you know do something, obviously you have to know where to draw the line, the real date your donor issue. But outside of that, you just have to pay attention and not view it as a sign of weakness or a sign of being a problem with your ability to sell your organization. Because in the other day, that donor who's an extreme introvert or has no interest in you as a person, they might still love your organization. And the attitude needs to be, Everybody loves my organization. They just don't know it yet. So mm-hmm. that it comes out of every fiber of my being. I'm super excited about it. And they may not connect with me on a personal level, but they might be excited about the cause. And that's, that's fine. That's good enough. I'll just follow up with two ideas I have too, which is sometimes if your personality isn't driving with them, perhaps there's another person in your shop for yes. whom that would be a better fit. So if it isn't, I mean, I also am very extroverted. If I had to deal with an extreme introvert, I may not be the best person. No, that's okay. So there's thinking about the matching piece. And then the other piece I would say, which is just such a tried and true strategy is just ask really good questions. People love talking about themselves. Even extreme introverts love talking about themselves. That's a great, great, great point. Yes, thank you. So one of my favorite books is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Sure. Classic Dale Carnegie. If y'all haven't read it, read it. Okay, question coming in from Shanti. Shanti, do you want to ask? Hi, thank you. Yes, I was sitting here clapping and smiling when you mentioned the notion of it's like a one night stand. My prior organization, I recognized early on when I joined the team that, and I was the director of development, that they did have a very hit it and quit it one night stand attitude about courting a potential donor. And they also were the ones oh, I saw this ad in the newspaper. Let's go ask Mike Bloomberg because he says he's putting 35 million towards education. Oh, I saw this in Cranes. Make sure you drag this person's name out from this corporation and let's go ask them for money. And then the president would get very angry if by chance that person didn't bite. So then they had this, eh, hit it and quit it, forget them, let me move on. They should be giving us money. Our program is fantastic. But my question is, how do you change the mindset of a leader of an institution who think they know what the real development or fundraising strategies are. Because when I mentioned even that, the notion of a one-night stand and how they are more transactional than relational, both the board of trustees and the president were stunned, I think slightly offended, but then some of them had the nod just like you, Rhea, and go, you know what, Shantae, you're right. So how do you change that thinking, get them to begin to look at being more relational, not transactional, and go from there? So my initial reaction is, if you were to ask those board members how they got connected to the organization, ask them, was it someone who cold called them and said, hey, can you give to the organization? I bet 99% of them did not come in that way. There was a personal connection that did that. So you have to ask them, 
Why should that be different for anybody else? Why do they get the dial for dollars approach, but you got the courtship and the relationship? You, they took you by the hand and got you excited about the organization. You went from being a $10 donor to a $10,000 donor. Why would that change? Why what worked for you not work for the next guy or next gal? So I think that's something to think about is that I think people have a hard time realizing that cold calls really suck. And I suck, I mean, I don't mean that just a glib. I mean, it, it sucks the life out of you. Like, it takes the wind out of your sails. And the idea that you can bypass that by simply going through your existing network and then going one degree of separation beyond that, if you mapped out, one of the things that I learned quickly was not to ever ask a board member, who do you know? Because they'll look, look at you glassy-eyed. Uh, I don't know anybody. Nobody. Really nobody? You make hundreds of millions of dollars a year and you know nobody? Of course you know people. But the, you're asking them in a way that is, they're thinking you're asking them because of the money. What I do is often do the research myself. I'll say, okay, this person, he sits on his other board. These are the, those other board members. He goes golfing on Saturday with this person. He goes swimming at the Y with this person. I'll do the research that I can based off of personal information in the world that I can glean online because a lot of people are open books nowadays on social media, but even not, even professionally, I can see who's in their orbit. And then I go to them and say, hey, you know this guy? And you go, yeah, I golf with her on Saturday. Well, that's great. I think she really love what we have to offer at our organization. Would you make the introduction? Oh yeah, sure, no problem. Matter of fact, not all the time, but very often, if you are specific about particular people that you want introductions to, then they'd be like, yeah, sure, of course. I'm happy to do that. So I think it's just a matter of getting them out of the theoretical and getting into the practical to remember how they came in themselves, that it wasn't just a one-night stand, that it was someone who developed a relationship with them and said, hey, why don't you join our board? It was that kind of relationship. And then also understanding that it's going to require those board members to open up their own proverbial Rolodex. No one has Rolodex anymore, but, you know, I mean, they, their own context. Yeah, exactly. And make introductions. And you as a professional should be the one to try to do as much of the legwork as you can. Obviously, just only, you know, you can only do so much. But if you can be specific with those board members and say, hey, you know, this person, I think this person, because of their other interests and what they're doing, they might be interested in what we're doing. At, can you make the introduction? That will be way more effective. And then they'll understand better just how important their role is outside of just opening up the phone book and just start calling names. Thank you. I also think too, and Jen, I'd be curious about your thoughts, is it, I wonder if there's also just a fundamental lack of understanding of the donor journey. Because I think when people and board members in particular hear fundraising, they think solicitation. They think straight away asking for money without realizing that there's a whole process of identification and cultivation and stewardship. And I think I find with board members that once you actually elucidate for them, the percentages of where they need to be spending their time, it becomes, oh, so what you're saying is the solicitation is only 2% of this entire journey. And P.S., we don't need to jump to solicitation. And that's also why when a board member is gun shy to being involved in fundraising, you can say, okay, no problem. You get me 90% of the way there. We'll work on this person together. When someone has to pull the trigger and make the ask, I'll be that person because that's like you said, it's a very small piece of the ask. And what will happen over time is they'll get their footing. They'll say, oh, this is not as bad as I thought it would be because you had a great time going to their office. You got to hang out with him or her, whoever she is or he is. And you realize that it's a relationship. It's all this, these things. Again, it's just hard sometimes to explain it to people in a way that they can see visually. Because I think people, you could talk to them and say, here's a chart and here's the graph and how it go from identifying a donor to connecting with the donor. And it still can be a theoretical PowerPoint slide to them. But when you put it into real terms and they see, oh yeah, this 
meeting somebody on the golf course or in their office is going to be way more valuable to us than getting a $10 donation on the phone. Because of what this is becoming, even if we haven't gotten to the gift yet, we know that when we ask for a gift, they would be embarrassed to give $10 now because of the amount of time and investment and in, in the relationship we have put in and that fact they know what the needs are now. We're heading in that direction. We're going to get something more of a capacity gift from them because we invested. So it's one of those things that sometimes you have to find a way to get them in. And you describe you know, that idea of getting them to play a role in fundraising, even if it's not pulling the trigger on the ass, it will get them with their feet wet and they'll realize that they can actually swim. Well, let's talk about this too. Again, I want to. I love this dating analogy, but I feel a lot of times people have been burned by relationships in the past. We've all been the target of bad fundraising and felt transacted and, and hit it and quit it. And, Wait a second, uh, you just hit me up for money. And so I guess I'm wondering, how do you also help board members understand what it means to be a professional development executive. I understand you are unwilling to open your Rolodex or make the introductions if you feel the person you're giving the introduction to is going to embarrass you or make it awkward for you, you know, at the next cocktail party. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, first of all, the fact that how you present yourself to your existing community that you're in, your donors, your volunteers will make a huge impact. Again, if you're not attractive, then they're not going to want to introduce you to anybody. Even your website, if your website is atrocious or your materials are atrocious, then you think someone's going to be proudly sharing that they're involved with your organization online? They won't because you're going to look like a two-bit operation and no one, you know, why would I ever? It impacts my profile. It impacts the way I present myself. And that's the online experience. The offline experience is even more delicate because if I'm going to open up my Rolodex to my people and you're going to be that person walking through the door, then you better be that type of person that I would feel confident, like, oh, they're going to love Jonah or they're going to love Shantae. They're going to love whoever it is that's going to come walking through that door. So that's really important, the role of being professional or polished or fitting the vibe of your organization. Not all organizations are cut from the same cloth. There are more bohemian, crunchy granola places that you need to be that type of person. And that's fine. Right? That means you're talking their language, their community, and you're not meant to be all things to all people. But you should be cognizant of the culture that you're in. And if you're in a suit and tie place or a dress, formal, more formal wear, then that's that's what the, the world you're in. And if you're in somewhere, a place that's just khakis and a button down, then that's acceptable. You have to be able to understand that you are representing the organization and you're hoping to make inroads into the relationships of your board members, committee members, volunteers, community leaders, all that, then you need to kind of look the part. Here's another question, Jonah. So a lot of what you're talking about is sort of emotional intelligence, being able to read the room, being able to connect with people. Are development folks born or are they made? In other words, if you don't have the kind of personality that feels very warm and connected, can that be taught or is that a person who's doomed to not be in development? I think there are certain things that need to be there. But when I gave you the original story about me having a nice smile and carrying a good conversation, I think the bar to clear doesn't have to be some super charismatic nightclub producer type of person. You can be someone with a nice smile and a carry a good conversation. So that I think the minimum is you should be pleasant to be around. Because the same way the question was asked, inverted question of what happens if you have a donor who's more of an introvert, this is a business for introverts too. I'm sure we skew, you know, the industry skews more extrovert, but there's nothing wrong with being introverted professional. And I know plenty of them from my 18 years of working in this space of people who are the opposite of who I am personality wise, but they are 
the sweetest, kindest people I've ever met. That you you trust them. You know that you're in good hands, and that is fine. What we're talking about the emotional intelligence is a muscle. So the way you learn what works and doesn't work is by doing it. One of the things that I talk about this because I have four children. We didn't let our kids have any smartphone. Well, we have smartphones, but they only to do basic stuff. They can't do Instagram. They can't do any of these social media apps because they are not learning how to have human-to-human conversations. When you're seven years old and you call another kid on the playground fat, you should see how they look when you call them fat. You should see that their face drops. They feel terrible, and then you go, "Oh, that didn't feel good to me either. That was not good." That's something you have to learn. You have to navigate those experiences because you are in that kind of dynamic. Nowadays, when people say, "I have friends," I don't know what they're talking about. Are you talking about real friends, or are you talking about the three thousand friends you have on Facebook? So, I think it's really important to acknowledge that the real relationship and the ability to forge them comes from practice. You have to be someone who says, "Okay." I'm going to go out there. I'm going to go meet new people. I'm going to be doing this as a fresh fundraiser or whatever role I'm going to play in the organization. And I'm not going to be an amazing conversationalist in the beginning, but it's the only way to do it. Now, obviously, we're not talking about the equivalent of you were fat or that kind of thing. You're not going to say that to somebody, but that equivalent of how to navigate a parlor meeting or how to navigate an event, looking for the people who are standing on the sides of the room who are awkwardly not involved in any conversation and being comfortable to go walk right over to them and say, "Hey, how are you doing? Welcome." That kind of stuff you just learn. You want people to be comfortable. You want people to feel like they have a place they're belonging. And those are things you only learn by doing it. So have a nice smile, carry a good conversation. The rest you learn on the job. Okay, I have one last question for you. So one of the challenges that I've heard from a lot of folks in the nonprofit sector is my board is not engaged in fundraising and is not introducing me to anybody. And so in my experience, and I'd be curious to hear about if you agree with this, is major gift fundraising is really driven by the board and their ability to open up networks. So I'm wondering, what would you advise if you have a board that is just not willing or or either willing to open their networks or don't feel that they have the kind of networks that would be potential givers? First of all, I wouldn't tackle them as a board. I would probably tackle them individually, especially the ones who I think carry the most power and influence, the ones that people look up to on the board. Because if I'm able to start getting a couple of board members to open up to the prospect of being involved more in fundraising, then it won't be like a light switch. It'll be more like a dial, but it will transition over time. That for sure. I would say if I see there's a culture that's not in place, first of all, it's a challenge. Culture doesn't change overnight. Culture changes by putting in good habits. People often say, okay, I'm going to go to the gym January 1. I'm going to be a gym rat. I'm going to go to five days a week, go for an hour and a half a day, and I'm going to be amazing. I'm going to be in great shape in six months from now. And it very rarely pays off like that. Why? Because they try to jump in and do it all and not put in habits, small incremental habits, and then build from there. So when you're talking about changing culture, the way to change culture is not to just talk about it. If I go in front of a board and say, guys, we need a new culture, that will never work. The way you change culture is creating new habits. So anything that I can do with the leadership that will do that will be small changes that, that are focused on cultivating relationships identifying new people, things that that are not huge numbers, one person, two people from each board member, getting to do small things and seeing the payoff, 
even if they're limited, but the, something that can grow over time, they will see that even if you're not there yet, they'll start saying, like, okay, we're, we're, this is, we're, we're definitely heading in the right direction. This is what we need to be doing. That's if you have a board member. Your question was with the board, if not interested, but also your board members might not be the right people to make the introduction. That's a different question. Their reach isn't necessarily the right people. So the answer to the first question, it's incremental changes that head in that direction. And you'll see that they start developing into bigger gains to use a uh, workout type of uh, comment, muscle building. But as far as not the right board members, that often you see when it's usually a younger organization with friends of the founder, people who are passionate about the cause or at least passionate about you as a person, they like you, and they've joined the board. It's an opportunity to start thinking in terms of what the kind of roles and responsibilities of a board should be and being able to then kind of audit who you have currently that might be able to fit that and make sure that there's someone that these people will kind of join with you and then start looking for new people to ground out the board with some of those things that you want. And the people who are truly not interested and this is not their thing, they'll fall off. They won't be offended. They'll just realize, you know what, not really my place anymore. This is not really the type of organization, the type of role I don't fit in anymore because I'm not pulling my weight. And then they'll more naturally come off. If Even if term doesn't come before then, they'll fall off. But I think it's just a matter of figuring out what those expectations are and to start working towards that, both with the people you have and bringing new people on board. And I just really want to highlight that point because I 100% agree with you. So a couple of things I just want to make sure that we underscore here, which is when you say the board, don't think of them as a board as a monolith because they are yet again, people, just like donors are people. And so you have to consider a specific strategy for each person. And then the second thing is it is a process. Changing culture takes time. The culture wasn't made in one day. It's not going to be unmade in one day. And I say this a lot. It's kind of a gross analogy, but how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Donor by donor, board member by board member. And over time, you start to get some traction. We are wrapping up. Jonah, where can people find you on the interwebs? So definitely my company is altruicity.com. That's A-L-T-R-U-I-City.com. My book is dateyourdonors.com. But if you go to free.dateyourdonors.com, you can get the introduction in the first chapter or two for free. Uh, So that's free.dateyourdonors.com. I'm on Twitter at Jonah Halper. I'm on Facebook. Pretty much all the social media platforms, you can find me there. Cool. Well, Jonah, thank you so much. This is really fun. You answered a lot of our questions and thanks so much, everyone. Have a great day.